0: Everything that you should do should assist you in that north star. If you think that you're spending time and money on things that ultimately don't help you get there, then maybe it's not the best use of capital. You should always prioritize people, products, and profit in that order. People always come first, the product comes second, and then the profits will will come third if you get number one and two right.
1: Welcome back to the Generation Hustle podcast. It's been some time, so we're happy to have you here and let's jump right back into it. Episode 70 is with Adit Gupta, co-founder and CEO of Lula. Lula is an institutionally-backed delivery tech company that helps stores by providing an all-encompassing platform that connects the world to them. Adit is a PhD student at Drexel University with research interests in computer vision, artificial intelligence, and human-computer interaction. So we sit down to talk to Adit about the idea behind Lula how he founded the company during a pandemic and how he successfully raised a $5.5 million seed round. This is a great conversation that we hope you enjoy. So on today's episode, we have Adit Gupta, who is the founder, co-founder of Lula Delivery. And uh, yeah, he has an amazing journey. Um, You know, had a chance to kind of see a few articles on him and he's been working on a, a lot of great things. So thanks again, Adit, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Aman. Sweet. So one of the things I love to kind of start off with is, you know, prior to becoming an entrepreneur, you know, everyone has their pathway um, in terms of, you know, understanding what their skills are and what they're good at. And one of the things I found interesting about you is you participated in a lot of hackathons. And I see that you've enjoyed a lot of that experience as well. So what about those experiences perhaps influence your kind of pathway towards entrep- entrepreneurship? And what about hackathons specifically excite you?
0: Yeah, Uh, you know it's interesting because now, now with the COVID nineteen pandemic, you know hackathons aren't a big thing anymore. Um, But you know certainly when I started my career at Drexel, around twenty fourteen is when hackathons were starting to pop up, and I went to my first hackathon in, uh, you know, it might have been fall twenty fourteen, and it was at the University of Pennsylvania. I walk in to this big center with hundreds of tables, thousands of people working, and I see everyone coding. And instantly, I feel like I can't build a thing because I was a business major. I went to college as a business major. Um, Changed my major the week after to computer science or software engineering, rather. Um, Hackathons really helped me problem solve stuff. You know, you're building an idea. You have a whole weekend to do it. But the most interesting part was the pitching. You're pitching to these executives, these all of these different people from different companies. Um, and after 36 hours of building, 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 you now have to stand in front of 10 judges for 15 minutes and continuously pitch over and over and over and over again. And so I got to, I had the opportunity to do that more than 20, 30 times throughout a couple of years, different cities every time. And I fell in love with that. And it's very similar to entrepreneurship. You're building all the time. You're pitching yeah. all the time. But at the, I, at the time, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So you said you moved from business to obviously a, a comp side background. Did you have experience coding prior to that? Um, or it just completely new? And ha- Like that transition seems so like wild to me because, you know, you, you didn't have maybe a coding background, but you're going into these hackathons where you might have a lot of experienced coders.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and the background there is it's actually, it's weird enough starts from tennis. Um, I, I, my, my background in tennis was I start in high school. I started on the tennis team. I was number 36 out of 36 people. And then my senior year I was, I, you know, I practiced the heck out of it and I was not only number one in my team, but I was number one in the state of New Jersey, number one in Delaware, top 10 in New York. Um, and I knew going into, I had this mentality that whatever it is, it's hard, but I can figure it out. I can, I can eventually become good at it. So with coding, when I started it, uh, it was on, very intimidating, uh, scarier than, than tennis or competitive yeah. tennis. And, um, but I knew that I could figure it out and it took me f- like four or five years to, but I eventually did figure it out.
1: Yeah. And I think that's an important thing there. It's, uh, a matter of execution and continuing and being consistent, uh, which you obviously did. And, and, I mean, kind of look at where you're at now with kind of those skill sets, right? So um, the other thing I love touching point on is, you know, culture and how it influences you as you grow up. You know, you come from a South Asian culture, which I can obviously uh, relate to. So how's that maybe made an impact in terms of, you know, your upbringing and influence towards building something?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, growing up, I would always go to India in the summers. I had the wonderful opportunity to to live with my grandparents for some time and to travel in India to go to, you know, almost every part of India. And I was really blessed to have that opportunity because it really helped me understand how people live in different parts of the world. Uh, and here in in America, a lot of us are super fortunate to have an incredible standard of living uh, the opportunity to do whatever we want. Um, and so just having that awareness, uh, helped me quite a bit. Uh, but also, you know, I was lucky to be exposed to some amazing food, which is, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, I love Indian food. Um, but yeah, so, you know, my, my parents came here to the, they immigrated here in the late nineties. Uh, and, Uh, most folks actually don't have a chance to understand their culture uh, in a deeper way, but I was pretty lucky to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, for me personally, I mean, I've only been to India once and that was maybe around when I was like 10, 11. Uh, Obviously, I wish I've had more experiences now that I've grown and maybe I can experience different things. But, you know, I feel like that kind of piece is kind of missing out of me. But, you know, uh, I live in an area of Toronto or suburb where, you know, it's a lot of South Asians. So I guess you kind of get that, understanding of where that culture comes from so you know you obviously have that lived experience going there and it's influenced you in a positive manner um you know the other thing that you know maybe this is an extension of is uh what role did your parents play in terms of making that influence for entrepreneurship i know they they personally own a convenience store which is kind of the story behind um you know lula delivery but we'll get to that later but what role have your parents played in uh, terms of your career thus far
0: yeah. Um, and you know, this is really interesting because a lot of times most kids of entrepreneurs have no idea that their parents are entrepreneurs yeah, until yeah. you really think about it. Um, so, you know, before I was born, my parents would, uh, you know, they actually own a restaurant for a while. And, um, my dad is, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, super impressed with his journey. He owned other businesses. Uh, he built a number of businesses, uh, and i didn't realize that he was an entrepreneur for the longest time um and so you know he went to drexel to become become an engineer and then he wanted to open up retail stores and so uh his store he started this retail store or convenience store in the northeastern part of america um didn't really understand that that was an entrepreneurial thing until i started my own thing but Yeah. yeah you know they never forced me to start anything. They always asked me to whatever I did, just do, just be really good at it, which I think is the right way to approach life. Whatever you do, just be really good at it. So whether it's playing tennis, I, I did want to go pro in tennis for some time, and I could. That was the only thing I wanted to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, and they were like,
0: "Great, just be really good
1: at it." hmm. And maybe maybe uh, from the context of South Asian culture or even Asian culture, one of the things, you know, maybe you've had friends who have experienced this where, you know, their parents are entrepreneurs or, you know, they might not even know, like you said, they're entrepreneurs, but they might influence their kids to go into maybe a more standardized career. You know, that lawyer, doctor, you know, that typical thing. Why do you think that kind of uh, thought process exists within our communities? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, If if I had
0: to, you know, put my scientist hat on, I I would probably say like optimizing your ROI, you know, most of these folks have immigrated thousands of miles and they want to make sure it's not for nothing. They want to make sure the ROI of future generational success is prevalent. And so maybe that's one hypothesis. I'm not sure there could be many others.
1: Yeah. I've always thought it as, you know, being uh, parents trying to make us more... uh I guess, more risk adverse in terms of our, again, the ROI or that potential, uh, because they took all that burden and maybe they have those hardships and they don't want their kids to kind of have that. So I feel like that's deeply ingrained within South Asian culture, I guess. Uh, But, you know, I've seen a lot more South Asian become more entrepreneurial and influence their kids in that way. So it's great to see, Um, you know, if you were uh, a student today um, or, um, you know, working towards some kind of pathway What would you encourage them to invest in uh, most of their time with?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, this is a great question. Um, What I would say is, you know, Tim Ferriss has a really good notion on, um, you You know, do you want to be a generalist or do you want to be a specialist? And the answer is neither. You want to be a generalist who has a specialty. Uh so how do you do that? You can't be a generalist if you haven't had a lot of experiences. So you want to do a lot of different stuff, you know, go teach some tennis, go volunteer at different things. You don't want to optimize for income or revenue at this stage, you want to optimize for self-growth. So that's exactly what I did. Um at a point not only was I taking a full course load, I was traveling around to go to hackathons, I was doing an internship, I was doing another unpaid internship to build code for a hospital um and my goal was really to understand how different industries worked how the heck does the world work um and so that's exactly what i would tell people a lot of times people are optimizing for that end goal which is i'm going to go to school i'm going to get a job at google after and that's my one and only objective um and they fail to maybe think about well what are the core uh capabilities that i want to build like in myself as a person uh and so most people i would say you know invest in yourself invest in your financial health financial literacy you'd be surprised you know how many people don't know you know things like what are roth iras what are different financial instruments to help you become more financially stable as you grow in your career so learn that stuff it's free it's on youtube um that's what i would probably say (laughs)
1: Yeah, no worries. I think YouTube is an amazing resource and, you know, maybe get philosophical for a moment. I've um, just to touch on Naval, uh, who has a lot of points on kind of wealth creation and how to kind of, you know, build a better career for yourself. Uh, You know, you mentioned outcomes basis. I think a lot of people just focus on the outcome rather than live in the present. And then, you know, don't really kind of cater those skill sets to achieve that outcome. So they're so ingrained in that mindset of I have to achieve this, but they don't know the kind of the steps and stepping stones to kind of get to that level. So uh, very good point there. So now kind of making that segue into entrepreneurship and actually what you're building. So, you know, Lula is a platform helping convenience store owners um, and other alike with delivery. Um, so, you know, you have a personal story related to this. So I love to kind of understand why you pursued this venture um, and, you know, that story itself.
0: Yeah. Um, so in, the middle of 2020, when the whole world was shutting down, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone knows where they were when they heard their city was going into lockdown and they couldn't leave even to go outside. Um, I was in graduate school and I was uh, kind of experiencing it through my parents' business. It was shutting down and I could clearly see the, the disconcerting kind of feeling of this is our, you know, revenue source for our household. And, you know, when people can't go in a store, how how are sales going to happen? And uh, that, you know, that was something we struggled with this, you know, know, long story short, the store ended up shutting down a couple months in towards the end of the summer, but in that time we were trying to figure out, uh, well, we have all this stuff. How do we put it online? And we tried everything. We tried to build an Amazon page. We tried to even sign up on one of the delivery platforms and put the stuff on there. And we realized, as an end user, you know, even as someone as as technically able as me, uh, it was such a hard problem. My parents would never be able to do that, and most people would never be able to do that. Um, So that's where Lula came about, And, and Lula is a. Uh, is that we joke around and say we're one of the only delivery companies that doesn't deliver. We're the bridge between brick-and-mortar infrastructure and online delivery, a single-stop solution that helps stores deliver everywhere online with a single point of integration.
1: Awesome. And, you know, the the whole delivery and logistics space, you just mentioned, obviously, you don't do the actual fulfillment side of things, but uh, I feel like it's the most challenging space to kind of be in because, you know, you have the whole mapping and kind of connecting and supply and demand. Um, so how did you kind of go about early on? I said, you, you probably did make deliveries early on. I uh, kind of read some articles, but how did you make that shift in coin going to make using third party, uh, delivery systems?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, early on when we started this business and, you know, Lula actually means, um, convenience in this awesome, uh, language or place called Zulu. Um, and we, we, ha- we built her simple app. We were working with the, you know few hundred or few thousand items from my parents' store, which was now in our garage, in boxes. We were taking those things, we would, we would put them online, maybe the top 20, 30 things, and we would deliver them from our car, scooter, etc. Um, after a time, we, we realized that this is not scalable. We have to figure out how to get this to everyone. Not just one delivery platform, not only our delivery platform. And we pivoted the business to you know towards where it's this really incredible opportunity we found to be able to partner with these larger delivery organizations like Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber Eats and get this inventory on all of them. And so you know that is really our bread and butter. That's what we do now is we do order aggregation and we're able to get these thousands of items on all of those websites in a relatively very quick and simple way but we started with doing it ourselves we were the we were the delivery drivers i still remember the 11 o'clock ben and you know someone ordered ben and jerry's at 11 yeah. o'clock every night um, <laughs> <laughs> uh we knew that you know this is not what we want to do uh we want to empower thousands of stores and we can't do that if we if we aren't able to get them to the places that people are buying it from, you know, the Grubhubs and Ubers, et cetera.
1: Right. Okay. So um, let's just say I'm a convenience store owner listening to this podcast today. You know, uh, Lula excites me. What's, what's the, say, you know, benefits to them in terms of an ROI of having you in a background uh, helping them?
0: Yeah. So, you know, for convenience stores uh, you have one sales channel, people going in your store, you know, oftentimes these are people within a one mile radius. We're opening up your store on every delivery platform, the over 200 million people available across a 10 mile radius. And these Mm -hmm. are different people than who comes into your store. Yeah. And we're doing it in a way that's 0% commission for you. So if you sell your stuff for five bucks, you will get five bucks when we sell it online. Um, Very, very financially viable for a store because we're not eating out of their margin yeah. and then secondly you have the benefit of uh you know making three four five thousand dollars extra right. every month which annualized is is a lot it's like thirty, forty grand a year yeah. of extra sales
1: yeah and i think that's a huge impact for especially a small business owner uh any roi in that sense would be huge um, so, you know, let's move into kind of like maybe the growth strategies cause you've scaled quite a bit, um, to garner interest. And, um, you know, I'd love to understand what you employed in terms of, you know, one getting the delivery or logistics companies on board, but two getting the, obviously the supply side, the convenience stores on board, uh, and convincing them.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'll start with the, uh, with the, with the supply side first, uh, we, we built a really sophisticated strategy to be able to blitz scale to every comedian store in the country within five years. And we're, we're on that track. Um, we built, we, you know, what, what we did was we figured out who lives in stores, who are the partners for these stores, you know, who goes into these stores, let's partner with those organizations and let's figure out how to get to them through the people that they trust. And that, that's been, you know, really successful for us. Um, we've just, uh, just, uh, grown over 400% in partnerships just over the last 60 days. And, uh, we're going to continue to try to do that month over month. Um, so the supply side is there people around the country stores around the country chains around the country aren't delivering right now. Um, and so that that's quite concerning you have every convenience store you have every restaurant around the country that's delivering but more than 90 percent of convenience stores are not which is which is the number i wanted to get out
1: yeah awesome Uh, okay and then the second part with uh the connection of the logistics companies
0: yeah you know for the logistics companies um these companies are they've built incredible businesses they've built marketplaces for entrepreneurs to be able to make more money um just the disconnect with the convenience industry is this is a very particular type of customer demographic the way you onboard them the way you maintain them is completely different than the way you do it with restaurants um it's just a different customer but the value proposition that these delivery platforms have built is so strong uh it does work but you have to mold the solution in a different way towards the end customer and so that's that's where we come in we're that adapter for this industry to come in and be able to take advantage of online delivery
1: got it so it's basically an expansion kind of thing for them on their end and um understanding that new side of customer that they may not understand so well right now yeah exactly awesome Awesome. Um, so, you know, you we, we heard recent news. Obviously, you, you your team raised $5.5 million seed. So congrats on that. Um, and you kind of almost also took an unorthodox approach, which we might get into a, a little bit here with stonks. But, uh, you know, as a co-founder, what was kind of the strategy that you uh, went in with to ensure that you had a successful round of funding? Because, you know, oftentimes we found finder, uh, founders uh, struggling with uh, timelines and or you know they feel stretched in terms of you know the commitments that they have to go with fundraising.
0: Yeah, we were fortunate enough to raise a really healthy seed round at an incredible valuation. And um, I think what most founders forget to maybe think about is that raising capital is a full time job. Yeah, you cannot uh, make it your partial job. You you can't take out two hours a day to do it. You have to leave everything that you're doing and for the next 30, 60, even 90 days, for some even up to six months, they have to do it day in and day out. And you know, unlike any other jobs, uh, this is very specialized where you're having a lot of conversations, but you know, it's a sales job. Uh, with with a sales job, you're selling a product or a service. In in this you're you're selling a dream, a vision, parts of your company even um, for incredible investors to hop on board and be able to make that vision into reality. You know, for us, it's the vision to, to be the industry changer for the convenience store industry. Um, and that's what you're selling. Um, and so for, for me, we ran it as such, we ran it as a very organized sales process with a full pipeline. Um, you know, the, the, it's the rule of threes. You talk to a hundred people, uh, maybe, a third of them will answer. Maybe thirty-three percent of them uh, will answer. Maybe a third of the thirty-three, so about eleven, will have a second conversation. Maybe a third of the eleven will end up committing, and so maybe you'll have three to four leads that end up committing out of a hundred leads. And most people go in; they'll talk to two investors, they'll say no, um, and they'll become discouraged. Yeah. yeah. Um, so run it like a sales process. Be very organized. Go in with a plan, there's some really good books out there to help you um, make it a very tactical, very organized sales process. I would recommend using a pipeline tool, use a CRM, track every touch point. At the end of the fundraise, you should have metrics of you know, biggest check, lowest check, time to get the biggest check, time to get the lowest check, number of email touch points. And a no is not a no. A no is, I don't think this is for me right now. That's it. Yeah. We've had investors that said no in the last round that came on in this round. Mm-hmm. We had investors that said no in this round, contact us three months later and say, we want to be in. Yeah. Uh, no is never a no. Make sure you're collecting all the emails. Make sure you're being very respectful. Yeah. Um, you know, at, As a salesperson, you have to make sure that a, don't let anyone waste your time, but don't waste other people's times either. Be very respectful, very organized, and you'll have a great process.
1: Yeah, you bring a very, very important part there in terms of this whole cycle of fundraising is also an example of relationship building. And, you know, in your case, or in a lot of founders cases, they get a lot of no's, but I think they just cut off or just kind of kill the relationship there and then kind of kind of you know maybe recycle it in that way why is it so important to keep those relationships open and uh, what would you encourage founders to do on a more continued basis so they keep those relationships uh, strong
0: sure first and foremost when you got to no know is to take some time just ask for feedback just be like hey i know this isn't a good fit but how can i learn from you and how can i grow from your feedback the second thing is be very consistent about a monthly cadence i send out a monthly newsletter to all of our investors and to all of the people that are interested in investing, to all of the people that said no, but said, you know, maybe let's keep in touch. Um, That list has grown from four to 10 to 20 to now over 200 people. And it goes out month over month with quality content. We get over 70% email engagement on every email I send. Uh, And at the end of the day, you're building an audience, a community of supporters. Um, and you know, the reality is over time, you'll get to be more selective of who you want in there, who you don't want in there. Uh, but early stages, pre-series A, you want to anything that's on the table, pick it up and find every opportunity that you can to grow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I love kind of the approach you took to amplify your message in terms of, you know, fundraising, you went on a platform called Stock. So talk about that story.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, Ali and, and Jeremy and uh, everyone from the Stonks team are superstars. And uh, I'm not sure how how we were connected to them, but I, I think they uh, learned about us through another platform and, and uh, you know, within a week we were into their final like eight or t- 10 companies. Um, I've got to be honest, I hadn't heard of Stonks before going on. Um, and I was so busy at the time, I couldn't do in-depth research of what, what is it that they're building, but stonks is really changing the way fundraising works. And we were just so lucky to be a a part of the whole ecosystem and program and, uh, you know, wonderful experience for us ended up raising over a million dollars just from that experience. So it, it ended up, you know, we were going to close out our round at about three, three and a half million, Mm -hmm. but okay. We, we ended up raising almost 40, 45% more because of the quality of partners we met through yeah. the Stong's platform. We just couldn't say no to them.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, an overs- oversubscribed round is hard to come by. So uh, capital is also hard to come by. So, you know, um, kudos to you guys for taking advantage of that and making sure that pitch went well. Um, you know, the other thing I'd love to understand uh, from your perspective is, you know, learning the specifics of a term sheet Um, Because it can be pretty daunting. It's a legal document. Um, Oftentimes, you know, we don't really have a business background or founders are technical in nature. So how did you prep? um, And how did you kind of come about in terms of making the most sound decision for Lula?
0: Yeah. Um, So there's a really good book, I would say. It's called Term Sheets and Valuations. It's by, uh, uh, I forget who who it's by, but it's a short booklet uh, about a hundred pages, and they take a term sheet, a a very sophisticated term sheet, and one line at a time, help you understand what's going on from pro rata to uh, what's a qualifying round to board seats to preferred stock, everything is in a hundred pages. So I knew uh, going into this experience at Lula that regardless of what happens, we want to learn as much as possible to be able to help this industry. And so my co-founder Tom and I have been reading a ton of books on this stuff. And, uh, by the time fundraising came around, we were lucky enough that we knew you know, what to say, what not to say. Um, and so what I would also encourage you to do is have a board of three to four people, not a board of directors, but, mm-hmm. but a, advisory board a few people that you can go to and get opinion now you're not trying to get people you know you're not going to say hey i mean i got this term sheet this was the valuation cap these were the additional terms what do you think uh and do what they say but you'll hear repetitive feedback from three or four people and that'll help you make a better decision so um I've seen founders when they get a term sheet, they'll, they'll say, yes, I'm in Accept it on the spot. Yeah. We'll do that. That's the yeah. worst thing you could do for your company. Um, you want to make sure that when you get a term sheet, you have the people read this book. You can YouTube it nowadays. Um, dream adventures does a lot of amazing YouTube, uh, videos that I personally watch as well. Um, yeah. So again the information is out there and use the people in your network to get thoughts
1: yeah and i think that's uh, an important thing because i actually have a story of a founder who lost a lot through not reading or understanding what a term sheet was so basically the backstory there was again similar he just signed it because you know capital was there let's just going go with it uh, he didn't read the fine print and noticing that was a 3x liquidation preference mm-hmm. and so Once uh, they obviously didn't work out in terms of like the long term of the whole business, but when they were liquidating, uh, they were basically left with nothing. Um, So that's obviously a story that some founders obviously go through. And that's why it's so important to review any legal document that you kind of walk through. right? So, um, you know, when you have those investment dollars now, um, what is your approach in terms of, you know, investing in resources and how do you prioritize those decisions on where the money should go?
0: Um, you know, when we raised our first million in our pre-seed round, we were all hands on board to getting to our first hundred retained customer, paying and retained customers. Uh, we got there and we got there in December and, and since then we've tripled in two months. Um, we raise this capital and we're all hands on board in getting to our next milestone, say, you know, for even numbers, a thousand, two thousand. We have our milestones for where we want to be month over month and quarter over quarter and year over year. Um, So how we think about it is if our North Star is, let's just say for this example, the number of stores and the revenue that each store generates, um, everything that you should do should assist you in that north star if you think that you're spending time and money on things that ultimately don't help you get there then maybe it's not the best use of capital for instance if you think a marketing opportunity might be really impressive and amazing and uh but at the end of the day you have to be scientific about it what are the mqls or marketing qualified leads that come out of that opportunity and how does that contribute to your sales goal um at the end of the day, it's again it's all numbers. So if your CAC from one marketing related, you know, is tremendously higher from another one, don't spend money there. Um so that that's what I would say. Keep it simple. Uh you don't have to overcomplicate things. Yeah. It's okay to spend money, you know, it's okay to pay yourself, it's okay to spend money on your team. Um and I read this from another uh incredible. It may have been Adam Grant or, or someone. Um, uh, actually, no, this was uh, Ben Horowitz from okay. the Horowitz. Yeah. Uh, you should always prioritize people, products, and profit in that order. People always come first, the product comes second, and then the profits will, will come third if you get number one and two right. Uh, and so that's what we're doing.
1: No, that's awesome. And maybe a reflection of that, how, what were your thoughts on Um, how you structure KPIs and understanding business performance? Because I often see startups tracking like 50 plus KPIs, which have no meaning in terms of what you're building right now. Uh, I often say maximum of like maybe five uh, to kind of understand the core of what you're doing. Sure. Um,
0: You know, play around with it. If you have 100 KPIs that you're tracking, first of all, kudos to you because that's really hard to do. Um, But then secondly, it's like, you know if if you have a KPI, let's just say revenue. um what happens if this goes to zero? You're screwed. What happens if you double this? Great, so that should be a great kPI. Um, other things like customer satisfaction. what happens if this goes to zero? You're screwed because your revenue is gonna go to zero. What happens if this is really high? You're good. Um there's a lot of other kPIs that people will track that'll have no uh, direct output to the company, but just think about it in terms of what happens if this goes really high or what happens if this goes really low. Um, And you don't want to distract yourself with more than three or five objectives at an early stage. But as as you grow, you'll notice that your team grows and different departments within your company will have different KPIs. Yeah. So you as a founder will still have two or three high level KPIs, revenue, maybe month over month growth. As you grow, you'll have, you know, your own HR metrics from your employee to revenue ratio uh, where you want to maximize for that number and um, or profit margin or whatever it may be. Uh, But keep it simple, have two or three, and this will change over time. So that's completely okay.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome feedback. So, you know, that kind of uh, allows us to understand you as a business person. But, you know, going back to you yourself in terms of personal uh, stuff. I noticed you were actually pursuing your PhD, which I found really, really interesting. Um, So, you know, walk us through how that came about.
0: Yeah, you know, I started my PhD right after undergrad. Uh, I, you know, my my research is on how do you build AI solutions such that non-programmers can then build AI. Currently, AI is built by coding. You code stuff, Um, but then you know, really. Amazing people like doctors and etc. or business folks can't build AI systems. So our lab, which is the Teachable AI Lab at Drexel University, works on this particular topic. So this is what I started, you know, right after undergrad and pre pre Lula. And I was lucky enough that by the time that Lula came about, I was able to finish my coursework and was able to, uh, you know, have some publications and, and stuff like that. Um, post Lula, it's definitely been, you know, a, a change of focus for me. So uh, unfortunately, I had to put that on sort of a, a, a halt. It's it's on a part-time uh, kind of experience where my full-time attention is to making sure every store in the country uses yeah. Lula. Um, but at the same time, I think that a PhD ha- has helped me become a much better entrepreneur. And And, and frankly, I... Don't think that you know uh, I think that there's a lot of overlap with the scientific approach and how startups should be run as weird as that sounds uh you're when you're solving a problem uh you think you may have the solution, but you 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 know you need to build hypotheses you need to do a number of experiments you need to pivot quickly, otherwise you can't solve that problem and i I was able to learn all of that you know doing very technical AI research at Drexel. And I was able to apply a lot of those techniques directly into the first year of the business. And, you know, I think we grew really quickly because we were nimble enough to know when to pivot, when to double down on a hypothesis. Uh, even now, uh, we were able to cut down onboarding time for certain set of stores by 70% by hypotheses we tested and, uh, we, we doubled down on it. And, um, so, uh, Yeah. You know, the, what I would take away is like every entrepreneur is also getting, every entrepreneur is getting a PhD in their respective fields or problems they're solving. You know, if your company is opening up coffee shops, you're getting a PhD in how to open up coffee shops. If you're doing delivery, you're getting a PhD in delivery and uh, a, a structured curriculum teaches you how to do it in a more academic way, which I think, you know, for all entrepreneurs, I would urge you to maybe Google how to apply the academic way of solving a problem to your company, because it's super impactful.
1: Yeah, no, I, I actually love that in terms of how you've used and understood the experience of, you know, that knowledge based area, and applied it into more of a technical area, such as building a business. I, I find like, oftentimes, you know, uh, entrepreneurs are always kind of, you know, thinking of what's next. And there is usually a logical approach and framework that you can apply, which I feel like in the science background, or some academia background, you know, there are frameworks and how to kind of approach a situation. And so I love the approach that you've taken there. And it's uh, obviously had a huge impact in terms of where Lula's at today. Um, so, you know, outside of all this entrepreneurship world and kind of bu- business and PhD uh, love to understand kind of what activities you yourself enjoy, you know, why is it so important for you to kind of have these outlets to decompress as well? Yeah.
0: Decompressing is really important. Um, I uh I think for me I'm I'm lucky enough that my my parents are about 30 minutes away from the city my girlfriends in the northeast about an hour or two away she's uh in medical school and I, I get to visit all the time um and it's important for you to to have time to decompress because this is a marathon and it's not it's not a sprint and if you don't treat it like a marathon and pace or stuff yourself you know imagine running a marathon without any practice yeah without a single you know practice before and that's running a startup uh and so the best thing you can do is pace yourself don't like sprint for the first 20 minutes because then you'll walk for the next like 60 minutes um and so for me i do a lot of things like i play tennis um you know my co-founder is also my best friend so we'll go out and we'll grab some uh you know grab some food outside we'll, we'll do a lot of fun stuff outside um i also love to travel so uh whenever we travel for business we'll make sure to add another day just fit in another day for fun and it's little things like that that you you have to just put in there to keep yourself going and it's something to look forward to um and so our, our whole team has has you know done pretty well at that because you know again people product profit we yeah. prioritize people over everything else
1: yeah. So what, what's it like, uh, I say, inside the company and some of the policies that you might have around, you know, men- mental health wellness? And uh, you've already mentioned the importance of it, but, you know, making sure employees are actively participating in mental yeah. health.
0: Well, this is coincidental, but, but later this week, we're hosting our happy hour. And unlike, other, so we do this monthly, but unlike every other happy hour, this is a, a mindfulness happy hour. Um, you know, for every happy hour, we give our team members a stipend to go, you know, uh, order stuff, Order whether it's order drinks or food or whatever. Uh, this time around, we're actually empowering people to order something that's going to help them for their mental health, whether it's a book on building habits or building you, a strong mental health sort of technique or a yoga mat or a air purifier you can keep on your table. And so um, we're going to be teaching everyone a very effective yoga technique on or breathing. It's, it's a breathing sort of thing on, uh, later this week, we're going to be talking about how do you start journaling just your day, how it went, were you satisfied? Um, you know, you know, it's little things like that, that really help out. Um, uh, at the end of the day, you're, you're working with people and, and you need to make sure to take care of people, but we also have a number of other policies that we've built uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to work in some really big companies and really amazing companies. And I got to take away a lot from them in terms of knowledge and policies even. And so this building my own thing, we were able to be really creative. So we have a policy called lunch on Lula policy, which is go out, wear a Lula piece of swag, take a picture while having uh, oh, nice. with another team member or, you know, family or friend or whoever uh, lunches on Lula. Um, uh, as long as you allow us to post that on social media. Yeah. Um, we have other policies. It's like build your dream desk policy. So we'll, we'll give you a certain amount of a stipend for you to get whatever your monitor or a keyboard or whatever you need to build the best desk, because we are a completely distributed company right. and we have team members in all parts of the U S but we also have team members in Europe in Asia. Um, and so your office is at home and we want to empower people to build their best office. Um we have a number of other things like unlimited PTO, we have Teladoc, a number of benefits, class pass for our team. And it's just a way for them to you know, we also have other things where we'll pay for internet for for team members. They can get internet reimbursed. So we're trying really hard to put people first and just make it really fun and an experience where All your
1: needs and wants are catered to. Yeah. And again, coming back to that whole philosophy of people, product, and I forgot the profit was the last one. Um, You know, you investing so much in your team and staff, obviously the morale is going to go up, but I also feel like they believe in you as a leader in terms of, you know, supporting them. So they're obviously going to have probably better output, better ideas and better involvement within the company for the long term. So love how you kind of approach that kind of value uh, in terms of providing that to your staff. And uh, it's hugely important. Um, And maybe just, you know, uh, finalize the podcast here today. I'd love to understand maybe your thoughts on today's hustle culture. And I think it's ingrained a lot in millennials and Gen Z's a lot. But uh, do you think it's created more harm than good?
0: Um, that's a great question and I think so, um, I think that you shouldn't have any, uh, you know, burden to, or, uh, no one should be expected to hustle all the time. Uh, the people that are doing the most have an internal desire or an internal motivation. They all get that through themselves, through a life event, good or bad. Um, through motivation of uh, someone that they know. Uh, And we've noticed that it's very hard to ingrain in someone else. Um, So it's bad because if you're a hustler, you'll expect everyone else to hustle with you. And that can create a pretty bad culture. You have to know that everyone's unique and different. Everyone's a gem. So you have to treat them differently. Um, Most entrepreneurs need to be hustlers. Yeah, Uh, It's a, very competitive environment out there. But just know that not everyone is expected to be a hustler. People will find like tranquility in not hustling and doing something very simple that has an immense effect on the organization and the organization can't live without them. So that's, that's what I would say. You know, this is something that I struggled with years ago where I would expect everyone to give 110% every day, right? uh, but you can't expect that.
1: Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, I usually say, being normal in that sense. Uh, you know, again, you said focus on tranquility or they find that kind of happy spot where they're comfortable with, um, you know, back when I was working with a couple of individuals, you know, the, they were engineers and they were up for promotion f- to become a manager. But a lot of them said, no, I want to be an individual contributor and not really go ahead and mm-hmm. go up to that level of managing because it just wasn't them. It didn't fit. And they were really good individual con- contrib- contributors. Uh, but if they felt they felt like you know they went up and hustled to become a manager, it might take away from the organization. So obviously, that culture piece is so important. So yeah, man, uh, that kind of uh, finishes up the bulk of the podcast. So one thing we love to do at the end of this podcast is uh, a little lightning round where we just get to know you a little bit better and just have some fun. So I'm going to ask uh, four questions here. I'll give you a couple seconds to answer each one. And we'll go from there. Love it. Let's do it. Awesome. So first question, favorite book of all time?
0: That's a hard one. I've recently read a lot of good books. I'd probably
1: go with Give Give and Take by Adam Grant. Nice, nice. Um, Next question here. If you could have dinner with one person, uh, dead or alive, who would that be?
0: Uh, I would go with uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, He used to say something really interesting every day. He used to ask himself first thing in the morning, what good shall I, shall I do every day? Or what good shall I do today? Uh, I, I, you know, I love that. And I feel like yeah. not enough people ask that question.
1: Yeah, curious individual. So I definitely can see how he can rub off in terms of an entrepreneur. Um, best advice you uh, can give to an aspiring entrepreneur?
0: I, I would say uh, do what you love and give it your 110%. And it's a marathon. It's the long term. You have to keep hustling, um, but make sure it's you're working on what you love because it's not work anymore. It's just fun.
1: Yeah, amazing. And last question here, we usually save the most controversial one for last. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? I should
0: end this call right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for,
0: <laughs> for me, pineapple is a non-starter. I can't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I have a couple of friends who will, the first thing they say. We're ordering Hawaiian pizza and I just like, okay, just order me wings. And I'll be happy with that because I'm definitely not kind of going down that route. So yeah, I mean, totally on, uh, totally agree with you on that one. Uh, But yeah, um, you know, any final thoughts Uh, where, where can uh, our listeners find you um, both personal and maybe the business as well?
0: Yeah. um, For me personally, you know, my, my email is audit at luladelivery.com. So, so reach out to me or search me up on LinkedIn. for Lula, if you'd like to get in touch, just go to luladelivery.com and you'll find all of our social links on, on the bottom of the page. But what I would urge you to, to do is the next time you're in a convenience store or a retail store, know that you can change their, the store owners live by uh, offering Lula or telling them about Lula, and then they could start delivering online. So just keep it in mind, and that's all.